When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to I'm a Writer But. My guest today is Ben Hinshaw. Ben's writing has received an O. Henry Award and appeared in Granta, Harvard Review, Story, The Carolina Quarterly, The White Review, and elsewhere. He earned his MA in creative writing at UC Davis and has received grants and scholarships from the Elizabeth George Foundation, Breadloaf, and the Community of Writers. Born on the island of Guernsey, Ben has lived in London, Nottingham, and Northern California. He currently lives on Guernsey with his wife and daughters. Ben's debut novel is Exactly What You Mean, published by Viking and selected for BBC Two's Between the Covers book club. Exactly What You Mean was called Brilliant and Remarkable by the Sunday Times, a notable debut from a smart and capable author by Hilary Mantel and riveting and beautifully patterned by Max Porter. Welcome, Ben. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be on the podcast. And likewise, I'm so happy that you're here. Um, I was telling you a little bit earlier that my favorite form of the novel is the novel in stories. And once I realized that's where we were going here, I was so pumped. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. I, I love them, too. Um, maybe it's uh, maybe part of the appeal is that not everybody does. And that's what makes Absolutely. them special. I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe that's a way for me to make myself feel unique. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're sort of in the uh, unique, uh, special clique of people who get these things. That's right. Watch out, world. <laughs> <laughs> Um, before we get started with our chat, I'd love for you to read to us a little bit from exactly what you mean. Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, I thought I would read just the opening of You Must, You Will, which is the fourth chapter slash story in exactly what you mean. Flora and Jonathan were reading in bed when he made the announcement. Two evenings a week, until further notice, he would be running home from the office. She laughed once curtly, like spitting. That's really, she said, really quite far. Why not work up to it? We could go around the park on Saturday. He pointed out that she ran only on weekdays, preferring to avoid, quote, weekend wobblers. Surprised by how mean this phrase of hers sounded, she shook two multivitamins out, swallowed one, and indulging a habit that would prove tenacious even long after he was gone, held the other out for him to take. I wouldn't mind together, she said. Tablet glow lit her face, scrubbed clean of makeup and doused with lotion. Reading glasses perched on her long nose. She only wore them around the house. On her nightstand lay a hand-tooled notebook for the recording of important nocturnal thoughts. The most recent entry... Salariac was several weeks old. 
He wasn't looking for a personal trainer, he said, just telling her not to expect him supper-wise much before nine. He leafed through the latest monocle. His pyjamas, patterned with tiny bicycles, though it was 20 plus years since he'd ridden one, had been purchased and wrapped by Flora as a gift from their eldest daughter, Annabelle. Supper-wise, she said, pleased at least by the sound of the word. In the thriller she was reading, a man in a woolly hat had just cut out a woman's tongue. Now Flora's tongue felt enormous in her mouth, enormous and wonderful. New voice on your phone today? She called around 11 to pass on the news of their middle child's third detention this term, as reported in an email from the head. Since Sally had never been any trouble before she went off to Millfield, and since Flora had begged Jonathan not to send her away, for the girl's own good, supposedly, though in truth her motives were more selfish than that, she was really calling for vindication. The new PA, Melissa was her name, had seemed talkative and incompetent, promising so emphatically to pass on the message that Flora had been sure she'd forget. In the end, they'd had the detention chat getting into bed, Jonathan receiving the news with a smirk. Flora looked across to see him staring at a perfume ad, bringing the page to his nose for a sniff. She could smell his last cigarette of the day. His hair seemed greyer than the last time she'd looked. How unfair that it only improved a man. Her own would need doing soon. Not that he'd notice, unless she shaved it all off or coloured it pink like that Spanish girl at Nero. Imagine the look on his face. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I want to know from you, when you knew, I guess I'm making an assumption by asking this question, but when did you know this was going to be a novel? Were you sort of writing stories and realizing that, that they were connected or was it something that you set out to do from the start? It's a bit of both, I think, because I had the idea of writing a book like this with, you know, recurring characters across different stories absolutely years ago, many, many years ago, even before I sort of started writing properly. Um, and that's not to say I you know, thought I'd invented the idea. I just thought, oh, I'd love to try that. Mm. Um, but in terms of this book, I did have a few of the stories already and I'd just written them, you know, to be individual standalone stories. And then I started to feel that I would like to try that idea of a linked collection that worked like a novel. Um, so then I sort of wrote the remaining probably seven or six stories of the book, knowing that that's how it was all going to work. And so I was able to write them deliberately, you know, with that structure in mind. And then it was a case of taking the ones I already had and reworking them and kind of uh, threading them into the overall arc of the book to make it all fit. So, yeah, I think it was sort of both in a way. It, it works so beautifully because um, I'm thinking specifically of, of Ned and mm-hmm. um, his loss and then his, the way that he's able. So just to spoil it for everyone, Ned suffers the loss of a woman that he's in love with that he's never been with mm-hmm. um, or never, you know, formally been with, but, um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, pages and pages and pages and stories and stories and stories go by. And then, then you see Ned again in someone else's story and Ned helps save the life of another woman. And mm-hmm. it's like a, it's a perfect crescendo of emotion, in my opinion, where you get to feel that 
you know, Ned is having some kind of catharsis or some kind of reckoning with what, what he lost um, and, you know, what he was able to do now. And I, I was so blown away by that because it feels subtle. Like your hand in this book feels very subtle. Um, and I just, you know, can, can you talk specifically about Ned, even though that that happens a lot in this book, there's a lot of, you know, coming back and revisiting and um, casual uh, devastations um, <laughs> that you set up and then explode later on. But I, I want to know, spe- just giving that specific example of Ned, you know, mm-hmm. how did you how did you form his arc? How did it come to you? How did you know I'm going to give him this, you know, this reckoning? Mm-hmm. Uh, gosh, it's actually sort of hard to remember. I definitely had, you know, his original chapter, um, Penny on the Wells, very early. In fact, I think that was one of the stories I had before I knew this was going to be a book, you know, that it would all fit together. And so when I was working on the story you're talking about, which is um, the final story in the collection or the, in the book, um, yeah, I honestly don't remember deciding that, you know, Ned was going to feature in that and that that would be, um, you know, how we revisited him and got a uh, sense of how much these events had affected his life in the intervening years. Mm-hmm. But it just seemed to, um, for one reason or another, just seemed to be, uh, it just presented itself as a good way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a connection to Africa um, in the, you know, when we first meet him in terms of um, the girl he's in love with and her travels. And then I knew that the, um story where he is involved in saving another woman's life i knew that was going to take place in africa and i think that was almost just a coincidence but um then you know obviously it quickly re- became clear that that would be a good way to bring him back into the narrative mm-hmm. um so you know i'm really glad that you felt that worked don't you feel like when the writing is good um it really is impossible to remember what you did and how you did it <laughs> mhm yeah, which is so infuriating because then yes. when you're trying to write something new, you're like, how do, how do I do this? I don't remember decide, figuring it out the first time. You know, that's part of the challenge, isn't it? Yeah, or when you're in interviews like this and someone says, what was happening? <laughs> How'd you do it? And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could. I wish I knew. I was talking to an author recently and I couldn't remember the name of a character in, in his mm-hmm. book. And he goes, I don't remember her name either. <laughs> And it's just, it's like you are mining this like deep part of yourself. You're so in the work, you're so in the narrative that when you rise out of it, it's too far down there, maybe. Yeah, I mean, that's what you're aiming to do, isn't it? It's kind of access something that's kind of out of your control or that you're not consciously dictating. You want to try and channel something, whatever it is. And and then as soon as you've done that, you don't understand where it came from or where you found it. It just is there on the page. Um, I think that's sort of what I find so fascinating about writing and why it's so hard when it's going badly, or at least when you're perhaps when you're trying to write and feeling like you can't get started. Mm-hmm. But then when you have actually accessed it and you know done that strange channeling, whatever you would call it, the feeling afterwards is so euphoric because you, you manage to um, to find it and tap into it again. I feel like it's just a constant struggle to get back to that feeling of, um, you know, writing something that you can't explain its origin, it's just coming out of you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I, I often feel like, oh, that's all I have to do. That's easy. Why do I yeah. love this so much? And then I sit down the next day and I'm like, oh, no. 
Yeah, totally. And actually, I had a meeting just this week um, with the editor who acquired exactly what you mean. Um, and I was, you know, talking to her about what I might be working on next. And she said something that was, you know, so wise and helpful and also kind of maddening. She just said, it's all in the writing, which is kind of what we're talking about. You know, she basically was saying, it doesn't really matter what you tell me you're going to do because it might sound bad or good, but then if you write it well, it'll be good. And if you write it badly, it'll be bad. And, you know, that's it. So, um, you know, it was helpful, but also like, God, I really just got to write it. And then you find out what you did. That's so classic editor speak too, you know, <laughs> yeah. they're like, you just have to do the work and you're like, you're right. All I have to do is the work. And then you're like, Oh God, the work. <laughs> yeah. You really just, I was just like, can't you just tell me this is a great idea and that you'll definitely want it at the end. And obviously that's asking an awful lot yeah. of an editor. So I know, I know, but, but I, um, I, I want those yeah. check-ins too. I want to check in like, and make sure you still like me. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can yeah. We're still friends. <laughs> Well, how do you get the work done? What does it look like when you're sitting down? You know, I'm, maybe it looks different every single time, but you know, what do you have a process? Yeah. Gosh, it definitely seems different every time. I think because, and not so much because each book demands a different approach. I don't, you know, I'd love to say it was that, but it's really just that my life has been so different each time. You know, this is my first book to be published, but it was the fourth one I wrote. No, the third one I wrote, and I wrote another one since. Oh so over the course of about, uh, I guess I've been writing probably 18 years or something like that n- now. And, um, you know, my life has obviously changed dramatically many times in that, in that period. So, you know, the first book I wrote, I was living at home still and I would come home from work, eat a nice meal that my mother had just made. And I would like have already taken a nap by 7 p.m. after work. And then I just write into the evening and, you know, I had all just, you know, so much energy and uh enthusiasm and then later on I was going when I lived in London I would spend two days a week in the in the British library and I found that a good place to work and then I started writing exactly what you mean when I was getting my MA at Davis and that was you know deadlines meaning you had to have something ready to turn in and stuff like that I mean I wrote some of it after I graduated from that program but certainly the structure of the program helped me get much of it written and then you know since then has been becoming a parent and um so then it just changes up completely again so this is a very long winding answer sorry but no, right now what I'm finding is that I'm basically just forcing myself to do about an hour about three or four days a week um and on a morning when I don't have to be uh working any of my other work jobs and the kids have gone to school and my wife's gone to work and just basically forcing myself to sit down and I put on this the same exact piece of music every time now it's become this really like almost superstitious ritual where I have to be have it, have this music on and I just write till it finishes. Um it is Music for 18 Musicians by Steve Reich. Um which is I guess it's like a modern piece of classical music. I think it's from the 70s. I'm not at all classical music um you know wise so I don't know a great deal about it but it's just this really kind of entrancing pulsing um hour of music basically and um i find it just gets my brain in the right space for kind of concentrating and keeping the momentum going and it lasts you know i think it's something like 59 and a half minutes and when i feel it ending i'm like okay i've done an hour i've written for an hour congratulations me and then i can just you know get on with my day and so yeah that's what i'm doing at the moment is just kind of using this 
extremely kind of um, repetitive routine to get the get the pages out. I'm a big fan of superstitions and, you know, uh, following them around like I'm on a leash. Um, <laughs> you know, you look at someone like a like a baseball, you know, major league baseball pitcher and mm-hmm. the things that they do on the mound before they throw the ball. It's the same thing every single time. It's, you know, tap this foot three times, you know, like pick yes. my nose, <laughs> yeah. chew my gum on my left side, and then I pitch, right? Like, and and it's because they have worked out this way that they can tap into the power that they have right before they pitch. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It, yeah. You know what I would think it's like for me? It's like, it's like singing my daughter the same five songs before she goes to sleep every night or whatever, like just that sort of same lullabies that lets her know that it's time to go to sleep. It's like, exactly. it, it's a trick on the brain. And so I'm just, yeah, trying to do the same thing to me instead of, except instead of sleeping, I'm writing. It allows you to access that thing that is pretty inaccessible unless you're lucky, yeah. right? Yeah. And the busier life gets, you know, and the more demands there are in your time, the more responsibilities, it just becomes hard as a sink, you know, slip back into that space in your brain. So I feel like anything I can do to make it easier to get there is worth a try. I feel like women are always asked this question. So I'm going to ask you this question. How did your life change after you had kids? How did your writing change? How did your everything change? Um, Well, you know, you just, um, it just changes in every conceivable way. I think, you know, you just have, you're getting a vastly less sleep than you used to. And, um, you know, obviously you have to always be kind of present in reality to, um, you know, to raise your child and take care of them and support your partner. And, you know, then there's the kind of financial element where, you know, when you're not a parent or not attached, you're sort of more free to take risks uh, in terms of life generally. And, you know, once you become a parent, that's that's not really so okay. And you have to devote more of your time to creating a stable, you know, living arrangement. And um, yeah, so just kind of in a logistical sense, um, you know, in ways that many other writers and parents have talked about, it just uh, completely transforms how your days pass. And yeah, as for the um, the writing itself, I, I think I'm still sort of figuring that out, which is weird because my eldest or our eldest is about to turn eight. So I think I should really have a sense of it by now. But um, I think it probably just, if I could summarize it, it's probably just that I'm more interested now in writing that kind of really gets to the emotional heart of something and is more honest and authentic and kind of, you know, just like, bleeds onto the page to some extent mm-hmm. i think maybe if you go back 10 years or something i was slightly more um fond of the kind of certain kind of usually male writer who is characters are somewhat restrained and laconic and you know you have to read all their emotions in one tiny gesture and i think uh you know maybe in terms of you know like trying to figure out my own personality I was sort of drawn to that it's sort of appealing in some way when you're still young um but now I'm just not interested in writing like that and I can see that my attempts to do so were just not successful because they weren't you know authentic to myself so yeah I think I'm just I'm just sort of more about 
making that connection, that emotional connection as quickly and as directly as possible. I like that you talked about, you know, understanding that you weren't being authentic to yourself, because I do think that's something that writers have to assess and reassess consistently. Um, you know, I feel like almost with every single book, I have to sort of say to myself, is this is this me or is this what I think I should be doing? Mm -hmm. Does that happen to you? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But maybe I'm not, you know, you're probably better. It sounds like you're better than I am at sort of asking yourself at the time. I think I maybe spent a few too many years, um, you know, trying to sound a certain way. Um, and I don't know why that is exactly, but I do think a lot of people, you know, go through it. I think, he, you know, I'm sure everyone's heard George Saunders talk about this, you know, he's how for years he was writing like these little Hemingway mm -hmm. imitations. And it wasn't until he wrote some funny memo at work or something that everybody laughed at that he realized oh i could just write like this instead um that's probably a bad paraphrasing of, of the true story but um i think yeah it's just something every writer maybe goes through but like you said it's not necessarily something you just get the hang of and never have to worry about again i think with each project you have to sort of check in with what you're doing and and figure out if it's if you're really doing it you know from your own heart rather than trying to put on a pose right um yeah yeah and, and it's exactly like you're saying because you do change and it, and it's not just parenthood it's it's life you know mm -hmm. I mean turning 40 not turning mm -hmm. 40 but being in my 40s has changed me um wildly from mm -hmm. from when I was in my 30s and in my 20s and it, sometimes I describe it as like the chip on my shoulder just getting smaller <laughs> oh yeah that's a great um, way to say it right because you kind of there's more for me at least there's been more grace um that I've allowed both toward myself mm. and, and toward the world um but yeah you know I think about like the books or the, the stories that I was writing in my 20s and 30s you know there's like so many creepy babies and <laughs> murderous babies you know and um like horrifying apocalyptic things and and it mm -hmm. is really true you know now I kind of want to write I think maybe because like being a parent is so scary mm -hmm. um, and wonderful, truly wonderful. But it really is like you're moment to moment confronting this like really fearsome thing. Yeah. And you want to capture the beauty in that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You just, you know, your heart is just, oh, there's that uh, Christopher Hitchens quote, isn't there about like watching your heart walk around in someone else's body. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure I've got that wrong slightly, but yeah, you're just so much more vulnerable and you just realize your own vulnerability, you know, through your children's. Um, and yeah, what you said about the chip on the shoulder, that's exactly how I feel too. I sort of try to, I've tried to view life the last like 10 years as just a series of opportunities to get over myself. And, you know, parenting was a really good one for that. Oh, and actually publishing a book, publishing a book has also been, probably you know one of the best opportunities to get over myself because you know it was something I worked towards for so many years and put way too much pressure on to solve however many you know whatever problems or issues I thought they it could solve and of course it, that's not what happens and so you have to like reframe it in your mind and say okay well you get over that idea that publishing a book will just be the you know the ultimate solution to life or whatever um and you know you need to 
keep going, but with a different, you know, frame of mind. Absolutely. I thought for sure my life was going to change in a huge way, but really it changes in, in these very small, I mean, for me, other writers, Mm -hmm. their lives do change in a huge way, Um, Mm -hmm. but it shifts in increments in a slow plotting way, you know? And so, and, but if you step back and you think when I was 20 or however old, when you decided I'm going to be a writer, Mm -hmm. like the notion that I would have a book published, you know, if you think of it that way, then it's like, oh my God, you know, that's, that's actually pretty, that's a, it's, I've started to view it as a miracle. I know I've said this many times on the pod before, but getting a book published is a miracle. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, totally. I mean, the number of things that have to go right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, quite. But that's, yeah, you're right. I had a moment like that just the other day. I was um, visiting London and that's when I met up with my editor and, you know, I went into Foils, a big bookshop in central London and, um, you know, I found my book on a table, a little stack on a table next to, you know, some writers that I really love. And I I just, my, I caught myself thinking, well, they obviously just have too many copies of your book and no one's buying it. So um, oh, it's ended up on this table. And then I just kind of, you know, metaphorically punched myself in the face and just said, stop doing that. Just like, just be glad. Just think your book is on a table now with some of your favorite writers, you know whether who was there Steinbeck or Gwendolyn Riley oh my even Nabokov or you know it was just like a it was just a great selection of fiction on this table and I just kind of had to force myself like just don't do that to yourself just just be pleased to see it there and then just you know go about go on with your day kind of thing I think that's another thing that shocked me too is I thought my feelings about it would be so clear and and you know I thought I would seeing my book in a bookstore would be a joyful thing. And it is, but there's also that self-protective, like, oh, well, you know, they had an empty spot on the table or, oh, you know, look, yeah. the stack next to it is much lower. So nobody's buying mine. Yeah. It's this self-protective bullshit, right? That you do mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. yourself, maybe because you don't want to get a big head, maybe because we're writers and we're used to rejection and, you know, the long mm-hmm. haul, but. It is. It's it's hard to just very clearly say, I am happy about this. And that's yeah. really shocking for me. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? I actually was reading recently um, Minor Characters um, by Joyce Johnson. Have you ever read that book? It's a memoir of, um, she was a writer, a novelist. She's still alive, actually. I think she's in her late 80s now. She published some novels in, I think, the 60s. And she worked as an editor, but the sort of topic of this book is that she was basically Jack Kerouac's girlfriend for a year when around the time that On the Road came out. Mm. And uh, she was, you know, in her early 20s, I think. But yeah, she talks, um, she's talking about how Jackson Pollock um, around in that, in that era became very famous, but he was still miserable. And also then Kerouac obviously gets very, very famous very quickly for On the Road and he just hates it. And she writes this beautiful paragraph about why artists just don't react in the way people expect them to, to success. Um, and it really just struck a chord. Uh, could I read it to you? Would that be Please. weird to I read something? That would not be weird. <laughs> I just, um, I've got it on my desk because I haven't put it away yet. Let me find it. Oh, I even folded the page down. Here. If this goes on too long, just like ring a bell or something and I'll, <laughs> I'll stop. So she says, artists are nourished by each other more than by fame or by the public, I've always thought. To give one's work to the world is an experience of peculiar emptiness. 
The work goes away from the artist into a void, like a message stuck into a bottle and flung into the sea. Criticism is crushing and humiliating. Pollock was hailed as a genius by the time he died, but could he have forgotten the widely repeated witticism that his paintings could have been done by a chimpanzee? As for praise, somehow it always falls short. Empty superlatives. The true artist knows the pitfalls of vanity. It's dangerous to let go of one's anxiety. But did you understand must always be the question. To like and admire is not enough. Did you understand? And will you understand the next thing I do? The wet canvas in my studio, the, the page I left in my typewriter. Unreasonably, the artist would like to know this too. Praise has to do with the past, the finished thing. The unfinished is the artist's preoccupation. I, yeah, I read that and I was like, exactly, no, exactly. That's exactly what I've been feeling. That is you know, exactly no matter what happens. You can't let go of your anxiety because that, then you're adrift, right? Yeah, and you would just, you just, it's just like this terror of losing whatever it is that makes you want to do the thing in the first place. And if you just sit there and let people tell you how great you are, if, if you're lucky enough to get that, then you just feel you'll lose it. So you just sort of nurture your feeling of anxiety and the feeling you have something else to do and something else to prove to whoever. Um, so yeah, you're just never satisfied basically. And <laughs> the only thing that helps is talking to other artists who feel equally, you know, in a disarray all the time. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I remember early in the podcast, um, we had an author on who said there's like 30 good things that can happen to you. If oh, that's Erin, Erin Summers. I yes, love that Aaron episode. Summers. Yes, <laughs> yes. And she said, you know, like three of those 30 things happened to me. And so, you know, and they were great things. They were really great things. But <laughs> then there's always yeah. the other 27. There's 27 more that I should. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I remember really liking that episode. I think I had just sold my book when I heard that the first time. And I felt like it was really good, um, you know, preparation. And then I listened to it again recently. And uh, yeah, the whole, the whole, I think she says disappointable. You just become so disappointable yes. for the, you know, the months after your book comes out and it's a horrible feeling because you obviously should be so pleased and everyone's think, you know, congratulating you and you're just like, but I didn't get that, you know, I didn't get that one thing or, you know, that 10 things that I could have got, even though you've got some things that, you know, you should be pleased about. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a weird, it's a it's, weird there's thing. No, there's no winning at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, good summary. Do you feel bereft when you send it to, you know, when you send something that you, in your mind, it's finished, it's ready for your editor or for a submission, do you feel bereft when you let go of it and send it out into the world like that? I, I don't think I felt bereft as such. I mean, I was sending out the stories that are in exactly what you mean, you know, for years. I think I counted all the rejections they all got and it was well over 200. Oh my goodness. Um, which isn't even that many when I think about it, like some, you know, some stories get rejected a hundred times mm -hmm. just, you know, for one story. Um, and I'd had, you know, other manuscripts rejected over the years by, you know, I had a previous agent that I was with for over a decade and, you know, we were never able to sell a book. So I don't know. I don't know if I felt bereft. It was always just a case of there's always some hope that something will happen with the thing. And then, there's the gradual sort of accepting that it's not going to happen this time. And then you kind of mope around for a couple of months or whatever until you pluck up the courage to try again. Mm -hmm. um, but I haven't really experienced that thing of, well, actually, am I going to contradict myself here? I guess, I, yeah, what I'm thinking about is the fact that 
um, the stuff I've been writing recently is actually picking up some of the characters from exactly what you mean and um, following them, you know, a few years later. And so, yeah, maybe without me realizing that's a kind of uh, indication that I was feeling a little bereft, not being, you know, yeah. But then again, you know, I finished this book 2017, something like that. So it had been a few years since I thought about them, you know, going back into to do the edits and, you know, talk about the book with people. I did sort of reconnect with the characters a bit. And yeah, in terms of when it came time to think of something I wanted to write, I just thought, well, maybe I'm not finished with some of these people. Are Tom so, and Maggie some of those people? Yes, that, um, they are Tom and Maggie. Because yes. yeah. <laughs> I, I wasn't done with their story either. So I'm so happy to hear that. I can't wait to read more. Oh, good. Well, thanks for saying that. I really need that kind of stuff at the moment. Oh, but yeah, a few people... Um, you know, a few people who read it would say to me, oh, you know, what happens to them next? You know, you, you left us hanging with all these characters. And, you know, you kind of have to do that with any book. It's never going to be tied up for everybody. But, yeah, for some reason, I just felt this kind of urge to go back in and catch up with them. So I'm just going to do that for a while and see if any of it, you know, is something I can use. I, you know, I actually really love the feeling of of suspension that you've created in in each of these stories and in the novel as a whole I don't mind the I didn't feel like left hanging I felt mm. more like wow that story it really like stayed with me and I'm thinking about it a lot um and I know I know that's hard for some people some people really need resolution and satisfaction but for me it's it's actually it widens the world of the book rather mm -hmm. than rather than sort of like pushes me off you know, the cliff. Yeah. I'm, well, I, I'm so pleased to hear that. And yeah, I, I feel the same as a reader, you know, that's kind of what I, I really love that kind of stuff, but I do feel, you know, the book um, has reached people who maybe don't normally read stuff like that, who don't necessarily want that feeling. And so, um, you know, they don't, they feel a little bit messed around by the book or cheated. I mean, just the simple fact that, it's not really mentioned on the cover that, that it's a, you know, 11, it's a novel told in 11 connected stories. And, you know, inevitably some people buy it then thinking it's a straightforward novel in the traditional sense. And, you know, by chapter four are like, wait a minute, these are stories, you know, these are stories. And they just don't want to do that work because it does ask you to do a little bit of work in terms of keeping those characters in mind so that when they reappear, you can pick up with them. And not everyone is, you know, you know fair enough. They're just not willing to do that. So, it's kind of a gamble, um, but yeah, you can't control, you know, you can't control who reads your book or how they respond to it. So you gotta, I'm trying to just let go of worrying about any of that. Have you been looking at Goodreads? <laughs> I haven't actually. Um, Good job. I know. Thank you. Um, between, you know, listening to podcasts like yours and talking to friends who've published books and who've just been like, just don't do it. And I knew I shouldn't. And I think I did for the first, maybe the weeks coming up to publication. And actually it started before that because I had one of these stories was in the O. Henry anthology in 2021. And I was so, I was so funny. I was like checking the Goodreads for that. And then I, people would like list their three favorite stories in the anthology. And I'd be like, oh, wasn't one of the three. And then <laughs> I remember one person like did, literally did i think all however many there are 20 or something in order of preference and mine was like 19th right oh. at the bottom i was like okay i need to stop looking at this and definitely not for the for my actual book when it comes out so no i've been like ridiculously strict i just 
don't look at any of it. And it's not that I would, you know, take it personally if someone didn't like the book. I mean, of course, that's fine. But you just, the fact that these scores just sit there on the internet now, you feel like anyone who gives it a bad score is just, is going to dissuade one other reader from giving it a try. And that just makes me a bit sad. So I just avoid it. It, it is. It's, I've actually, because I use Goodreads to do my reading challenge every year. So like challenge myself uh, to read 85 books or whatever. Mm-hmm. And when I go to like put in the book that I'm currently reading, I actually have come to be suspicious of books that have too high of a score. Oh, um, right. I, I've just come to understand that those books are not going to be for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I really love books that are like in the low three stars. <laughs> That's my sweet spot. I know I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to love this book because it's similar like on Rotten Tomatoes. Like if, if, if Rotten Tomatoes has a really good critic score and a, like a, a lower audience score, I'm like, okay, this is going to be a movie I like because <laughs> it's not going to give that sort of resolution or satisfaction that a lot of readers need. Whereas I like it yeah. to be a little bit more like we're hand in hand working together. I'm following the rules that the author has laid out for the book you know and and mm-hmm. see where it takes me and so I you know I used to really because I think all my books are in the low threes and so now this sounds like this is how I'm justifying my there you go books. congratulations but, <laughs> thank you okay <laughs> but I really think like okay I get it like I guess I'm I'm not writing the kind of book and I'm not reading the kind of books that give that kind of um closure I guess mm-hmm. yes absolutely but the fact is, even the books that get, you know, have a high score will have some people giving it one out of five. Oh, yeah. I guess I just ended up just saying, telling myself, you know, if it's if it's getting re- bad scores or reviews, then it's just reaching more people because the more people your book reaches, the more people who wouldn't like it in a way, you know. So, you know, if a book's only read by 100 people and most of them know the writer, then it's going to have, a you know, 100 glowing reviews and um, if it reaches some more, a few more than that and goes outside of the circle of people that the writer knows, pretty soon <laughs> it's going to meet someone who doesn't like it. And so, you know, I just tried to think of it that way and then also just never, ever look. I have a friend who gives four stars to books that she doesn't like and five stars to books that she likes. Oh, that's that's, that's lovely. Isn't that that's so la- generous? Yeah. Yeah, four, maybe four should just be the lowest. It should be four or five. Those there are the two. Go options to choose from (laughs) (laughs) i think that's so smart um when did bill pointer come to you i know he's based on don mccullen who's a famous photographer when did you Hmm. know he was going to be a part of this i just remember wanting to write about a photojournalist at the end of his career i hadn't read don mccullen's book when i um i was you know familiar with the book i'd seen it but i'd never read it and I was just really intrigued by that idea. I think it's moral injury is the term. It's not so much PTSD. I think it's moral injury is the phrase for when you've kind of been involved or witnessed things that leave you with this terrible, you know, lingering feeling of distress. And I just, you know, having seen some of, you know, some of the photos that these photographers take, they're, they're very harrowing. And to have witnessed um, some of these events and... I just thought that seemed like something I'd like to explore to write about. So I just, I got the Don McCullen book out of the library at Davis and read it. And I thought, well, I don't know exactly what the protocol is here, but, you know, he's exactly the kind of character I want to do. So I just sort of cherry picked elements of his life um, and then just kind of brought into life as a fictional character 
So yeah, Bill Pointer's backstory is not dissimilar to that of Don McCullen, but obviously the character is very much meant to be fictional and certainly nothing that happens in the story or that he says or thinks is meant to be um, reflective of Don McCullen. But yeah, I just, I just thought, found that stuff so fascinating. I, I wanted to explore what it would be like for a life lived like that and a career like that to start catching up with you as you get older. And, um, you know, in the story, he's had various colleagues or fellow photojournalists over the years who have kind of cracked under the strain of that moral injury. And and he's just starting to show some signs of that. And, um, yeah, so McCullen definitely gave me the sort of grounding to sort of jump off into the story itself um, because, you know, obviously I don't, I've never done anything like that myself. But once I had the background, I felt I could... Um, bring him to life as a contemporary fictional character. It's such a beautiful way to end the story, but also the novel. Um, mm, just thank you. An absolutely beautiful breath at the end there. Um, not to spoil it for people, but the final line as well. He said, "Shall we let them in?" Um, and right before that, it says it's a question he'd been trying not to hear for as long as he could remember, and it's it's just absolutely breathtaking and, and such a, I mean, I, I found it so brave and so interesting that his was the final story in the book because we had mm. grown so accustomed to all these other characters who know each other or know of each other or are related, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and his is, you know, I mean, of course he knows he's encountered Ned, but his, his story isn't connected in terms of neighbor or, or family mm-hmm. member. And yeah, but it's connected in terms of kind of what you're trying to say all throughout the book. I feel, tell me if I'm overstepping. No, I think that's right. Well, that was what I would hope would be coming across definitely, you know, thematically. And um, yeah, his, he is not connected to so directly, but he does sort of, his name crops up throughout the book, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's someone encountering his work and, you know, he takes that, he takes the photo of the guy that gets caught up in the riot in London. Um, so he's kind of lingering in the background. But yeah, as soon as I wrote that story, I just knew it would be the final chapter, not least because he's the kind of oldest character. So, you know, we start with the youngest, you know, in childhood with one of the characters when they're only probably 11 or 12 or something. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly. But yeah, Pointer is very much coming to the end of his life and it just felt like the right way to end the book. Um, and... Yeah, I think that last line, you know, I was I was taught, at, um, you know, or I remember it was, I think it was Marilyn Robinson who originally said it when she was teaching Ian Lee and then Ian Lee told us when she was teaching us that, you know, every line of dialogue should have at least two, two meanings, if not, you know, five or six. Oh. And um, so I really wanted to kind of have something like that to finish on. And obviously it has... A couple of different meanings well probably multiple meanings and you can hopefully read as much into it as you want to but yeah um, other readers have said it really kind of resonated back through the book and kind of opened up a lot of what they've been sensing in the book um all the way through so it's always really pleasing to hear that it, that it worked for somebody this was selected for bbc two's between the covers book club did you get to go on bbc <laughs> yeah, I did. That was uh oh. it was 
very strange. And this is part of what I'm saying in terms of the book reaching people who may not otherwise have encountered it. Like I have no idea um, how, <laughs> how I got picked for that. It's basically like a, it's a TV program where every, I guess they have something like six books every season, six new books. And each week the host and four kind of celebrities or public figures from TV or entertainment, you know, they read and talk about the book. And um, yeah, I found out in February of last year that it was, had been picked for this show. And I just thought, really, it's, you know, it's linked, it's a links collection of stories and it's quite literary. And I was sort of vaguely aware of the kind of books that are on there and, you know, they have a good mix definitely. And that's, you know, um, it's not that it's purely commercial or whatever, but um, I did think, oh no, lots of people who like that kind of show are not necessarily going to get my book. Um, but yeah, they um, about 10 days after I heard that it was going to be on, they came, two people uh, flew over to Guernsey from London and um, basically we spent the day filming. They filmed me kind of standing on the beach, looking moodily out to sea and, <laughs> you know, walking around on the cliffs and... Um, I remember at one point he was like, take a photo of the sunrise. And um, he was like, so I had to sort of prepare a script of what I was going to say to talk about the book. And he said, oh, in the script, you say, you know, the book is made up of snapshots of these lives. So I really want to get some footage of you taking a snapshot. So I was like, okay, cool. So, <laughs> and stuff like that. So it was actually really fun. They were both, uh, Scott and Ellie were their names. And they were great. And they really seemed to um, respond to the book. Actually, before they left at the end of the day, we sat and had a coffee and Ellie pulled out this diagram that she'd drawn of how she felt the book all fitted together. And I was like, that's exactly like the one I have, you know, the one I sent you, Lindsay. Yes, um, please tell yeah. us about that diagram because um, I'm glad you brought that up. Yes, uh, <laughs> Ben sent me his actual diagram mapping out how the stories fit together and, and respond to each other. Yeah, but I never had that when I was working on the book. I think some people like, think I did, but I basically did that afterwards to give to my mother oh. because, <laughs> because <laughs> you know, I just, I knew that she would want to understand it as much as she could. And, um, you know, she's not necessarily a short story reader or a collection of linked stories reader. So I was like, well, it'll only take me 10 minutes to sketch out this thing. And then I got really into it and it was really fun. But yeah, so now I, if someone says to me, oh, I think I got all the connections, but I'm worried I missed some and then I'll send them that and they'll be like, oh no, I did get it all. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, and then Ellie, this like production assistant from between the covers had drawn her own and it was almost identical to mine. So um, yeah, they had really engaged with the book and filming was fun. And then, uh, yeah, watching my, you know, watching myself on the TV was not fun, um, <laughs> but my family were all very excited. And the people, uh, the people on the show, you know, they they gave it their best shot. I think they were a bit like, "Wow, I've never read a book like this." And you know, they're busy. Like, one of them was a stand-up comedian, and one of them was a radio DJ from like a big radio station over here, Radio One. And you know, they probably read it like two days before in a hurry to try and get ready for the program. And <laughs> I really felt for them trying to like express that they liked it, but that they did, you know, had to work a bit harder than they usually do when they read a book to keep track of stuff. Maybe I should have given them the the diagram as well <laughs> it's not too late send it over <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so I think it, it you know being on that show it um promoted the book to people who may not otherwise have found it which you know was great but also I think probably did contribute to some um 
slight bafflement on their part. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I hope they include one, at least one, every season book that, you know, asks more of them than they're expecting. Yeah, I think it's a good thing. I mean, I love that when I'm reading, but, yes. you know. <laughs> it really helps you stretch, right? Like, it, it, it helps it helps you, you know, the more reading you do and the more diverse reading you do, the better you are as a reader. Mm-hmm. I feel like the people who respond most strongly to it are other writers or people who are very interested in writing because I think when you're someone who's invested in the process, um, you can maybe detect and, you know, I don't want to say appreciate, but you can kind of recognize what's going on and what and what's been done to make it happen kind of thing in a book like this. Whereas if you read books purely for the entertainment and you don't really care about writing or think about um, how writing works, you may not respond, you know, you may not get quite so much out of it. Um, but, you know, that's just my assumption. It may not be accurate. I think you're absolutely right. Sometimes I beat myself up and say, well, you're just a writer's writer. <laughs> like other oh, writers yeah. get you, but that's about it. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that too, and I've just decided to just think that's cool. I mean, most of the writers I love the most have been described as writers, writers at some point, and I think there's just no getting around it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's loads of writers out there, so um, you know, and they're probably the ones reading the most books. So I think it can be a really good thing to be called a writer's writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that like veiled, uh, like mean compliment that we give ourselves as writers right you're a writer's writer which is a good thing and also a a hard thing yeah I know it definitely has a sort of two edges to it Mm -hmm. um but you know even someone like Martin Amos you know passed away recently Mm -hmm. and I was thinking what there was such a huge outpouring um of kind of celebration of his work and I was just thinking yeah journalists and other writers love Amos well not everybody obviously but you know they're his biggest fans because they recognize the skill and the you know the kind of brilliance of his style but I don't know how many general readers out in the world are actually thinking oh no you know no more Martin Amos books I just don't (laughs) I don't think that was as many and that so you know no one's called him a writer's writer that I'm aware of but I'm sure it's writers that like him the most you know because he was so much about style and you know avoiding cliche at all costs and that's all stuff that to a writer is interesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um you know he was less about you know a ripping yarn <laughs> or whatever it is that casual readers like I, I i tried to read a book recently and it said like the word shelf like four times on the same page and i was like no <laughs> i can't do this <laughs> That's Shelf. how you know. <laughs> a writer's reading a book because you're like, didn't they notice? <laughs> yeah, I, I totally get that. I mean, because you're so used to reading your own stuff with a pen in your hand and like crossing stuff out and, you know, whittling down the sentences, or at least I am, I can't speak for everybody. So if you read a book that's not written well, you just kind of want to do that to the book you're reading and that it distracts you from actually enjoying it. So it sort of becomes... um self-fulfilling that you can only really get the most out of books that are written by writers who are really carefully writing you know really attuned to their style exactly Mm. do you have favorite novels and stories yes um 
A Visit from the Goon Squad, I think, mm. is probably my absolute favorite and many people's favorite. Uh, to the extent I love it so much that I haven't read the sequel because I'm afraid <laughs> that it won't it won't um, you know live up to the first one, which is not a good reason. But yeah, that book definitely um, I loved. Um, and actually, Olive Kitteridge, um, I know you guys have talked about that on the pod before. I had never read that book when I wrote exactly what you mean, but everyone kept mentioning it to me, and I was thinking, oh, well, I bet I would love it, and so I read it, and I did really love it. And I've since, you know, read loads of Elizabeth Strout's books and they're all fantastic. Um, so, yeah. And then there's a book called In Other Rooms, Other Wonders by Danielle Muenadine, which came out, I'd say, probably about 10 years ago, maybe more now. Um, and that is less of a novel in stories than just a really fantastic collection of stories that are linked. I mean, mm. you probably could call it a novel in stories, but it's set in Pakistan and it's sort of um, based around this one land-owning family and then all the characters that kind of connected to that whether it's the very wealthy children or you know the people who work on the land who are you know at the very opposite end of the socio-economic spectrum Um, but I thought that book was really beautifully done and I've been waiting ever since for him to publish a new book and and he hasn't yet but I think um I think he had a story in the New Yorker last year, oh, wow. which is, gave me some hope that he's still working. And um, But I think he lives in Pakistan on a farm himself. Um, yeah, but that book really stayed with me, and I always recommend it to people. What about you? Do you have favorites of this kind? I do. Um, I, I'm, my favorite is Hotel Never Sink by Adam O'Fallon Price. Oh, um, yeah. I, I haven't read that one because this is the problem I have that, um, you know, I'm in the UK now and that book isn't out over here, just like my book isn't out where you are. Um, but um, yeah, I'd love to pick that up next time I'm in the States for yes, sure. You should. It's um, it's so weird. And there's like a really horrifying storyline that runs through it all. And um, yeah, that, that book blew me away. Hmm. Um, also love Goon Squad. I haven't read The Candy House either for the same reason. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm good. I feel better then. <laughs> Even though I know people loved it, you know, my husband read it, he loved it. Um, but yeah, oh, good. it's, it's, I don't know, trying to hold close that first impression, maybe, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that kind of thinking isn't going to stop me from reading exactly what you mean part two. <laughs> because oh, I well. loved exactly what you mean. And I can't wait to re-encounter these and other characters. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, that's basically what I need to hear to keep writing at the moment, but whether it'll end up being something that I, you know, can turn into a viable manuscript, we'll have to see, but feels, feels like the right thing to do right now. So we're just going to, just going to go with it. Not, uh, not second guess it too much. No way. Leave the second guessing (laughs) to Goodreads. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which I will never, ever look at. Never. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on to talk about your book. I absolutely loved reading it. It's, um, I would tell people to get it, but they can't get it. I didn't know they couldn't get it here. Well, yeah, I was going to say, um, it's funny because people in the, you know, I used to live, I lived in America for several years. And so lots of old friends and people I worked with and stuff wanted to buy it. And when it came out in hardcover over here in the UK, um, the book depository was making it very easy to get hold of through Amazon in this, mm-hmm. in the U S 
But so I just, this is exactly kind of what we were just talking about. This afternoon before we talked, I said to my wife, can you check on Amazon, like Amazon.com that the book is available? Because I think that's the only way people can get it over there without having to, you know, import it from the UK. Because I couldn't look because I didn't want to see the score. Um, But should we quickly establish that it doesn't, the book depository no longer exists. And it is, my book is just not there on amazon.com. So I quickly was like, oh shoot, what am I going to say to, you know, to Lindsay? Um, Because I I assume most of the listeners, you know, of the podcast are in the US. Um, But what I found out was that most of the UK retailers that, you know, like um, Waterstones and, um, even Amazon UK will ship it internationally pretty easily. But the real um, the real tip is to get it from Blackwell's. I don't know if you've heard of Blackwell's, but yeah. it's a very old, it's kind of like the, it was like a, the university bookshop, like every university campus in the UK would have a Blackwell's in it. But they do this thing where they, they do ship books all over the world and they include the shipping in the price that you see once you, they know where you are. So I went to look at my book on Blackwell's and um, yeah, they'll send it to the US and somehow the price goes down <laughs> when you say, like it doesn't even add anything for the shipping. It's $9.99 retail price and to send it to the US, it's eight ninety nine. Oh my gosh. I don't know. Uh, so I even like went to the point of going to the checkout, putting in a US address and everything and it still stayed at eight ninety nine. So as of the time of recording, um, people could get it from Blackwell's um, pretty affordably i think it's worth a try it's definitely worth a try and it's worth reading because it is it's so beautiful it is um funny and poignant and you know it's it stays with you so everyone go to blackwell's and get ben hinshaw's exactly what you mean and maybe if you dm me listeners i will send you my copy there you go it could uh yeah you could do the rounds could be passed from one read to the next Yes, yeah. exactly. Let's let's start this, you know, this big web of exactly what you mean. And it'll kind of mirror the diagram of, of the book itself. Yes, that would be cool. Here, then here, then here, then here. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Lindsay. I really appreciate you reading it. And I love the podcast. It's really, um, you know, it's been great to listen to you as I've gone through the publication process and getting ready to write another book and all of that. So thank you for doing it. And thank you for having me on. I'm so glad. Thank you for listening and thank you for coming on.